You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. I want to think together about what it means for our church to be unified. And I want us to think about how we strive for that. For the next few Sunday evenings, I want to spend our time here in Ephesians 4 specifically thinking about the issue of unity. But we're going to get there by looking at the larger section. So before we're done with our study, we will go all the way down to verse 16. Tonight, where I want to begin is by reading verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is that call for unity. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go to our God together in prayer tonight and ask His blessings. Our Father in heaven, we thank You tonight that we are one in Jesus Christ. That is not something that our Lord prayed for in John 17 that is not already a reality when it comes to those people who belong to You. Lord, You have joined us together in union with Your Son. And so we know a real unity with each other that we didn't even create and we can by ourselves not sustain. It's Your doing. And yet, Lord, we see in Your Word, as we see in verse 3 of Ephesians 4, that we are exhorted to strive to enjoy that and to live that out in the way that we think, in the way that we behave, in the way that we deal with each other. And so tonight, Lord, as we begin this brief study on unity in Your church, we just pray that You would Open our eyes to see wonderful things that are in Your Word, things that will help us, things that will serve this congregation well in the days to come. Grant me clear thinking, clear expression in my words. Lord, would You deal with our minds and hearts in a way that we're attentive, locked in, listening, and Lord, that we would see what You would have us to see tonight and apply these things to our lives. Lord, as we think about unity, we're not just thinking about Your church. We're also thinking about something that should characterize us in in every relationship of life in terms of what we strive for. And so, Lord, may our homes be characterized by unity and may our relationships in every walk of life be something that that's what we're striving for. So apply Your Word to us tonight, Lord, in a way that changes us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The unity of the church is experienced in the life of a church when we recognize it exists not in isolation from every other part of the Christian life that God has called us to. 
Wherever you find unity in a church, it exists because it is existing on a foundation larger than itself. This is not to say that we don't find direct exhortations given to us in the Word of God concerning unity. We see that in verse 3. Paul is saying, be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a call to unity. But that call comes to us built on the exhortations you'll find throughout the entire section. It belongs to, I should say, I guess, every other exhortation you find in this section. So you can't isolate it. You can't pull the call to unity out of this chapter and understand it properly and apply it properly and experience it properly. The only way to live this out is when it's joined to the whole of the Christian life. That's very instructive when you think about other parts of the Christian life. So often what we do, especially if we're experiencing a struggle in some area of our lives, we want to go directly to the problem. God, give me verses that deal with my anger, or give me verses that deal with my selfishness, or give me verses that deal with disunity. We want to go right at the issue. But I think what you're going to find is most of the time the answers for our problems are arrived at in a more holistic fashion, in a more indirect fashion. What we're concerned about belongs to what needs to be solved, but it's not the only issue that needs to be solved. If you're struggling with anger, your problem is not just anger. There's something else fueling that. And so it is with disunity in the life of a church. It's not enough just to say, now be unified, church. Well, how are we to think if we're to be unified? What, what is that unity based on? Why would it be that we're experiencing evidences of disunity if we are? And how would the Lord have us to deal with those manifestations of disunity? I mean, all of this is larger than just the issue of unity. We're reminded when we come to Ephesians 4.1 that the Christian life is not just doctrine. You have three chapters of deep, rich, marvelous doctrine concerning our great salvation in Jesus Christ, what God has done for us by His grace in His Son. That third chapter ends with a word of praise. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, ends with this marvelous doxology. And then verse 1 begins with the word therefore. And from chapter 4 verse 1 to the end of the book, Generally speaking, it's about application. Now that can be oversimplified because chapters 1 through 3 will find places where application is spoken of, and chapters 4 through 6 you'll find where doctrine is spoken of. So, so the point is we're never to divide these things. The Christian life is not just doctrine, it's also doxology. It's praise and it is duty. All three elements belong to the Christian life. You have the principles found in the Word of God, those things rightly grasped will always result in praise, but if the praise is genuine, then you have practice. You live in the light of what is true. You live in the light of what you know, and your heart is full of thanks and appreciation and praise every step of the way. That's the Christian life. All three of these things go together. Well, in chapter 4, verse 1, what you have is a call for a worthy life. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
He's saying, in effect, have you really grasped the first three chapters of doctrine? Are you beginning to get hold of what God has done for you in His Son? Do you really belong to the truths of chapters 1 through 3? Do those chapters really describe you? And if they do, if you say they do, then here is what I'm exhorting you to, to put that truth into practice in terms of the way you live. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That calling having to do with your salvation. Now live in a way that fits with what God has done in saving you and it's been described in chapters 1 through 3. Do you realize that grace imparts responsibility? Grace imparts obligation. So live a life that matches your profession of faith in Jesus. That's a good way for us to begin tonight. Are you ready to live a life that matches your profession of faith in Jesus? So before we get to the matter of unity, understand that that call that He issues to unity in verse 3 will only matter to people who embrace the exhortation in verse 1 to live a life worthy of their calling. If I call you to embrace the kind of unity, to strive for the unity that God would be pleased with, that will only matter to you, and you will only have the capacity to do that if you're someone that chapters 1 through 3 have described, and if you're someone that therefore wants to live a life that matches your profession. Only those people care, really about unity. So before we get to unity, let's talk about the worthy walk. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to think about the call to live a life worthy of our salvation. Four things I want to point out about this call to a worthy life in verse 1. First thing we see is this, the call to the worthy walk is a logical call. It's a logical call. We find at the very beginning of the verse that word that we find so often in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, the word therefore. What I'm about to give you builds on something else. What I'm about to give you requires your understanding of something that has preceded it. What I'm calling for now is based on something that came before this exhortation. It's a very important word because it teaches us some valuable lessons about the Christian life. It says that the Christian life is logical. We're a thinking people. We live like we live because we believe what we believe, and we know what we know, what God has revealed to us. Our lives are being built on revelation. God has revealed the truth, brought us into the knowledge of the truth in His Son, and now we are people who follow Christ by walking in the light of what we know and what we know is what God has revealed. It's a logical life. It's a great lesson about how we're to read our Bibles. It reminds us that the Bible was never meant by our God to be read, studied, taught, or applied in a way that's piecemeal. As I said earlier, taking one thing, lifting it out of its context, and then trying to build you know, some way of living on an idea that is isolated from the context in which it was given. 
How many errors? How many doctrinal errors? But, but how many errors in thinking and in living would be avoided if passages of Scripture had only been understood in their context? You think about the charismatic movement and how many people have been taken hold of in that movement and how much of what that movement teaches only seems to make sense because it's been, what they're saying has been lifted out of its context. But it's not just that, those issues, those doctrinal issues. There's a whole world of issues like that. So we're, we're called to understand the parts in light of the whole. The word therefore alerts us to that. Also reminds us of how we're meant to live the Christian life. There's logical consequence when it comes to truth. Everything we learn calls for something demands something of it. As we've talked about before from the book of James, we are not auditors of the Word of God. We're not just hearers. We're called to be doers. And every truth you will ever learn calls for some response, some action as a result of that truth. It, it might be as simple as praise, but whatever it is that we're called upon to do, there's, there's some act of obedience in light of what we've just learned. Reminds us that the Christian life is not just learning, is it? And we could even say, though sometimes the obedient action is just glorifying God and praising Him and having right thoughts in our mind about Him, if you take the whole of the New Testament, it becomes clear the Christian life is not just learning and it's not just praise. It's also obedient action. We're called to make choices in light of the truth that we learn. This is how sanctification takes place. Doctrine gives us the knowledge we need for Christian living. Doctrine provides us with the motive for Christian living. We can even say that doctrine gives us the confidence for Christian living because we're not basing our lives on some foggy idea that I've come up with or somebody else has an, has an opinion. No, we've opened the Word of God. Now we know like a light for our pathway. We know where to walk. So it provides the knowledge, it provides the motive, the ambition, it provides the confidence we need. But then you have to act. You have to put it into action. Therefore, in light of this doctrine of chapters 1 through 3, I exhort you to walk. Walk. Worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Live. Now, in light of the things you've learned. That's the Christian life. That's how we live the Christian life. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That calls for effort, doesn't it? That calls for action. That calls for engagement. Work out your salvation. A right view of sanctification is not one that has us passive in the process. It's not pietism on the one end of the spectrum, go do it for God, but it's not quietism either. It's not just let go and let God. We are called to action. So thinking about unity for a moment, there are things we have to choose if we're going to walk together in a unified way. And whatever it is that we're called to choose for unity, it belongs to something larger than unity. It belongs to a worthy life, a kind of life that matches with salvation, a people who are living in a way even toward each other 
that matches with what we profess we've come to know in Jesus Christ. You see, this is how unity is understood in the larger context. Before he gets to verse 3, he's got to talk about the worthy life in verse 1. But then he adds this balancing statement in verse 13 of Philippians 2, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's the beauty of the Christian life. We're not passive, but we're not called to live in our own strength either. God is working in His people, giving us the desire and the ability to do what pleases Him so that we cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives. Christian life, sanctification, progressive sanctification, is a synergistic work. God is working and we are working. And God is at work in our lives with His Word. We learn the truth, but we learn the truth to practice the truth. This is a balance. I know that word can be misused. But when I talk about balance in the Christian life, I'm not just talking about the middle between two suggestions. This is how we often think about it. Well, this person says this, and this person says that, and so balance would be finding the middle. Now, you can find the middle between two opinions and be standing in the wrong place. Balance is seeing things in their proper proportion. It is putting things in their proper place. It is, it is not living a simplistic life, but a simple life. You believe what God reveals and you live in a way that's in keeping with what He actually revealed. Everything is in its proper proportion. That's balance. And we need balance when it comes to this issue of doctrine, doxology, and duty. We need balance. We've all been to youth camp, at least most of us have, at some point in our Christian life. You remember what it was like, those of us who are older, when you used to go to youth camp in your young years, you head off to camp and you come home and you've been on a spiritual mountaintop. You've been off for an entire week in some cases with fellow believers and there are praises and preaching and games and fun. Oh, that we could just stay at camp. But you can't stay at camp, can you? You've got to come home. And now all of a sudden I've got to deal with my parents. Am I going to be submissive to them? Am I going to be teachable? Am I going to honor the Lord right there in those relationships? And so it is with so many other things in the Christian life. We, we wish we get, we're like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. Can we build three booths here? And basically they're saying, can we just stay here? But you can't stay there. And when, you, when they came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, what does Jesus meet with immediately but a demon-possessed young man? You come down from the mountaintop experience and you meet with the ugliness of sin and the work of Satan. Well, that's what we need to remember in the Christian life. There's some people that all they want to do is talk about doctrine. Let's just meet at the coffee shop every day and let's study the Bible. That's, there's a place for that and that's wonderful. But some of those people just want to stay there. They don't actually apply what they're learning. And then there are some people who imagine they don't need doctrine. You've met these people. I'm not into doctrine. I just love the Lord. I mean, like, how, that, how is that possible without doctrine? There is no Christian life without doctrine. And so here it is. We are learning. But we are learning to live lives that glorify Him. And what that calls us to is practice. Now we've got to put shoes on and walk in the things we're learning. And it's got to be in every realm of our lives. When I go home, I live the things I'm learning. In my individual life, I live the things I'm learning. In all my friendships, I'm living the things that I'm learning. At work, I'm living the things that I'm learning. 
in church, I'm living the things that I'm learning. This is how sanctification happens. So that little word, therefore, reminds us this is a logical life which teaches us how to read our Bibles. It also teaches us how to live the Christian life. also speaks to us about the character of Christian living. And forgive this if it is a simplification, but I think it helps us just to say it this way. The Christian life is not just head, it's heart. It's not just gaining more knowledge, it's love for God. It's a logical life, but it's not a loveless life. And so when we're really learning doctrine, what does it produce? I mean, if we're really learning it, if we're learning it as we are meant to learn it, what is it going to produce? It's going to produce a heart that loves God and loves His people and loves the lost and desires to live in a way that most glorifies God. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy. We're going to talk about it in a moment, but, but what do you see in those words? Live a life that's fitting, that's worthy. Why do you even care? Because this is not a life of just rules-keeping. This is a life we live in light of this great salvation that's been given to us by the grace and mercy of God. And now we ought to live lives that match it, that fit it, that make sense in light of such mercy to us. That's heart. That's not just head. You will know when you're learning the Word of God in the way that God intends, because knowledge will always have two traveling companions. Two things will always come along with knowledge when you're learning something the right way. Traveling with knowledge will be humility and gratefulness. Humility and gratefulness. You will see your smallness in light of the grand revelation of who God is and what He's done for us. You'll see yourself rightly, and along with that then will be an appreciation of gratefulness for how kind and how good, how merciful, how patient God has been with you, which in turn will fuel your heart with a willingness to treat each other the same way. Notice verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. You see, this is what happens in the lives of people who have been called. Live a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called. God has had mercy upon you. Well, what does it look like to live that kind of life? He begins in the realm of our attitudes. There's a worldview that comes along with really learning the truth. And that worldview is a humble worldview. It's an appreciative worldview. I think often about 1 Corinthians 8, 1, which says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Paul writes, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Oh, I know that how I'm dealing with this meat issue is grieving people in the congregation. But we all know that an idol is nothing, Paul. And he says, yeah, you're right. We all know that it's nothing, but are you loving your brothers? Because if you really know something about idolatry and about grace and about freedom, if you really know those things, you'll be a humble person who loves your brethren and cares more about building them up than satisfying yourself. This is a great test as to whether we're learning anything the way we ought to learn it in the Christian life. And this is so important for the unity of a church. Is this a church that's really learning? 
Because where there is real learning, there's humility. And where there's real learning, there's such a gratefulness for what God has done in our lives, it leads to us treating each other in a way that reflects how God has dealt with us. So this is a logical call. Therefore, following those three chapters of, of intense doctrine, this is on the other side of it. This is what fits with it. This is what's required by it. Do you really belong to the first three chapters? If so, this is, this is now what you're called to do, to live a life that matches that. And it's in that larger context that the call for unity will be issued. Unity always exists on a foundation larger than itself. The second thing we see in verse 1 is not only is it a logical call, it's a living call. God has chosen, as amazing as it is, God has chosen not only to put His Word in our hands in the form of the Bible, but then to communicate His Word to His people through human vessels in the form of preaching and teaching. This is what God has chosen to do. So that the truth is coming to us in a living way. And so we hear not only the call to live our lives in a way that's worthy of our calling, a part of that verse 3, pursuing unity, but we're hearing it through the Lord's servant. We're hearing it from a man who's living it. Paul's not just the teacher of it. He's actually a great model of it. Therefore, I exhort you. Who are you, Paul? I'm the prisoner in the Lord. This man writing as a prisoner. This is a man who has experienced much hardship in his Christian life and ministry. I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This is a living call. And when you think about what's being said and the man who's saying it, a few things stand out about what we're called to do. It's a costly life that we're called to. Paul is a prisoner, and isn't it interesting, in the Lord. He's not Rome's prisoner. He's ultimately the prisoner of the Lord Himself. He is there on behalf of Christ. He's in prison because of the gospel and his relationship to the gospel in Christ. But he also recognizes in the sovereignty of God, he's not there by accident. The Lord has put him where he is, which greatly affects your attitudes about all sorts of things when you realize, I am where I am in the providence of God. And where he is is costly. It's difficult. Prisons are not easy in his day. The Christian life is not pain-free. The Christian life is not an easy road. If you think about living a life that matches your salvation, are you ready? Are you ready for a difficult way? Matthew 7, 14, For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Our Lord told us from the very beginning, it's a narrow entrance, and once you're in Him, it's a hard way. Through many tribulations, we'll make our way into the kingdom of God. It's a costly life. It's a consecrated life. Paul's a prisoner. Why? Why does he endure these things? Because he recognizes that his life is no longer his own. And what was true of him is true for you, true for me. 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he, speaking of Jesus, died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. Do you hear that? 
He died for you so that you would no longer live for you. Should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. You and I now exist for Jesus' sake. We live for Him. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And certainly that, that applies in a special way to those men who are called to devote their life to ministry. We're to be men who are single-minded in terms of our focus on ministry. But there's an, an element of that that applies to everybody in this room. That we recognize we are pilgrims passing through this age, so we're not living for the passing pleasures of sin. But in light of eternal treasure, storing up our treasure in heaven. Paul says in Acts 20, verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course. How do I finish well? By counting my life as unimportant in terms of holding on to it. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, right? Something dear to you, something to be held on to. No, that's not how I see my, my existence. Why? In order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Dear ones, this is normal Christian living. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling means that we've been called to no longer count our life of any account as dear to ourselves in order that we may faithfully serve Jesus, you see. We exist for Him, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That is the mantra. That is the attitude of any genuine believer who's thinking rightly. Paul was in prison because the gospel was worth more to, them, to him than his own life. He's in prison because Christ means more to him than his own life. He's in prison because the church means more to him than his own life. He's in prison because seeing the lost saved, evangelism, meant more to him than his own life. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. I endure all these things for the sake of God's people, those who are already God's people and those who will become God's people. This is a logical call, but make no mistake about it, this is a, a, a living call. It is a call... For us to live out what we profess about having lost our lives to gain Christ. Do I mean it when I say, for to me to live is Jesus? And Paul is a living example of what he's exhorting us to. That's the life that matches our profession. But is that how we're living? And this is a man who was living that way. He's a prisoner as he writes because he really does live that way. Third, it is a loving call. Logical living, it's loving. He says, I exhort you. New American Standard has, I implore you. Some versions would have, I entreat you or I beseech you. It's an impassioned plea on his part. He comes alongside them to exhort them with all of his heart. To live the Christian life as it's meant to be lived. And to be a part of a church that's going to experience unity 
You've got to be ready for that kind of passion. Will you be bothered by meeting with exhortations to really live what you profess? Will you be bothered when people love you enough? Because this is what you want if you really love someone. You want them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, don't you? So are you going to allow people to love you enough to say, brother, sister, let's live together what we say we believe? Are you someone who loves others enough to say that to them? If you really love someone, this is what you want for them. If you are indifferent about how other people are doing spiritually, you don't really love them. So if this is going to be a church that we walk together in unity, what we've got to be prepared for is that we're really going to love each other. We'll pull up beside each other, put our arms around each other and say, hey, let's live this. Let's don't just talk about this. Let's live this. This is a loving call. I entreat you. I exhort you. I beseech you. I implore you. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I like what John MacArthur said about this. He said, Christians should not resent a pastor's entreating them in the faith as Paul did to those to whom he ministered. A pastor who approaches his ministry with detachment or indifference is not worthy of his office. Loving concern for the spiritual welfare of others is costly, and apart from God's strength, it is frustrating and demoralizing. Let me just stop there in the middle of this quote for a moment. Well, he's exactly right. I've told people before, the ministry would not be hard if you didn't care. But if you really care, if you really care about your calling, if you really care about the church and care about the people of God and care about how they're doing, it is the heaviest weight I could ever imagine caring about. Paul says, you know, I've got all this stuff I go through and he lists all this stuff about beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and all the other. And besides all that, there's the daily anxiety I carry around in my heart concerning the churches. And that was the heaviest burden of all. MacArthur goes on, not only pastors, but every believer should have a loving concern to entreat implore, beg, and plead with others to respond in obedience to the gospel. Like Paul, they should have a passion to entreat their fellow believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to be everything the Lord desires them to be. I pray that this is a church. If you want to come in and just go to spiritual sleep, you won't want to be a part here. I pray this is the kind of church that people will love us Enough. We'll love each other enough to say, hey, let's walk together. Let's walk after Christ. It's a loving call. But you can't call people to what you don't have in your own heart, can you? You can't beseech them to live a life that's worthy of their calling if you don't have it in your heart to live a life that's worthy of your calling. Which gets to my fourth and final point tonight. It's logical, it's living, it's loving. Fourth, it's a lofty call. What we're called to is, is, is high. I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. The worthy walk is a faithful life. That's what we're really being called to in this verse, faithfulness. Walk. That, that's the imagery. When he says walk in a manner, the, the idea is day after day after day after day, walk. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live a life that's fitting all the time. 
live a life that fits in every circumstance. Follow the Lord Jesus no matter how difficult it becomes. How long, Lord? How long until I'm out of these circumstances? How long until it gets easier? How long until this person changes or my circumstances change? If it never changes, you and I are called to live a life worthy of our calling. No matter how tiring, no matter how disappointing, if you're given some responsibility that really tests you, tests your heart, no matter how long it takes, no matter what anybody else does, what would you do if you were in a lukewarm church? You're still to live a life worthy of His calling of you, walk in a manner worthy of that. It's a faithful life. Are you striving to live a faithful life? Can that word be associated with you? That is a faithful man or woman. Faithful. Faithful. Predictable. Trustworthy. It's not just a faithful life. It's a fitting life. The word worthy. Walk. Worthy of the calling. Worthy. The idea is of equal weight. Equal weight. Here's the weightiness of what God has done for you and now live a life that matches that. That is becoming of what you profess Jesus has done for you. We, we can envision it this way. There should be no sharp contrast between our profession and our practice. No sharp contrast between what we say we believe and then what we do. No sharp contrast between our doctrine and our duty. They match. By the way, what calling is Paul referring to when he says walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called? What calling does he have in mind? I believe it's the effectual call of God to salvation. Live a life that fits with what a disciple of Jesus Christ is. Live a life that's fitting when you think about the family of God. Live a life that matches the, the truth of regeneration and new birth, new creation. It's a lofty calling that we receive in verse 1 to, to live a life worthy of our doctrine of salvation. Calling, Matthew twenty-two fourteen says, For many are called, that's the general call of God, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. You were one of those that when the gospel went forth, the Spirit of God opened your heart. You were one of those that God granted you new eyes, granted you repentance and faith has given you faith to embrace His Son and therefore forgiven all your sins, all your sins, and now given to you as a gift, a right standing before Him that will stand the test of all eternity. You are stationed in the grace of God. Your Savior lives forever. What should your life look like in light of that reality? Revelation 17, 14, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We talk about that verse often, but that's exactly what the Lord did when He saved you. He said, Let there be light, and your heart was open, and you, you were able to see what you couldn't see before. You loved Him whom you did not love before. You repented when there was no repentance before. 
You believe when there was no faith before, and God did that for you. Live like someone for whom God did that. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's who you are. Now, equal weight. Walk in a way that's worthy, that's fitting, that matches that. And that's lofty. And we know that we all come short of that in the ultimate sense. But that's what we strive for in our living. And that's the larger foundation upon which a single exhortation like we find in verse 3. Now, be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you see what I'm saying tonight? Are you following my logic to just say to a church, now be unified, will entirely miss the point. Why do we want to live together in a way that reflects what is already real, and that is our union in Jesus Christ? Because, you see, the Lord has saved us. And that's what's worthy of that salvation. That we would deal with each other in a way that's humble and gentle and patient and long-suffering and loving, which will allow us to walk together in unity. So I finish by just asking, do you share this motive You're going to be thinking about on these Sunday nights what it means to walk together as a unified church. But it won't matter if you don't share this motive. Do you want to live a life that matches with what Jesus has done for you? Does unity, therefore, matter to you? Does it matter to you that you are walking in unity with your brothers and sisters? This is going to get back to to what Paul talks about in those verses I mentioned earlier where his life is of no account to him, etc. I mean, does, does, does Christ mean more to you than you? Does the church mean more to you than you? Does the well-being of another believer mean more to you than you? See, this is what gets in the way of unity. It's when you are put first. What would please Jesus means less to you than you. What would be best for the church means less to you than you. What would build up someone else means less to you than you. We all have knowledge about meat sacrificed to idols. What does it matter what I'm eating? Well, what matters is what you're doing to someone else. But does that matter to you, you see? Or do you mean more to you than your brother or sister? Are we willing to place ourselves second so that the bond of peace is maintained in the body of Christ? Let me, I'll finish with this thought. When is the last time you sacrificed something you wanted to maintain unity with another person in the body of Christ? I'm not talking about sacrificing truth, I am talking about sacrificing preferences. When is the last time you laid something down for the sake of the unity of the church? Or for the sake of the unity of your marriage? Or for the sake of the unity of a friendship? 
Does Christ mean more to you than you? Does the church mean more to you than you? Does the well-being of another person mean more to you than you? So before we think about unity, we think about the worthy walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Does that motive resonate in our hearts? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not only given us new life, you've given us new ambitions that belong to that new life. New desires, new goals, a new aim. And we have as our aim, we have as our ambition, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 tells us, whether at home or absent, whether in the body or standing before Jesus face to face, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to you. Lord, strengthen us to embrace that. Strengthen us to mortify our sin. Strengthen us to mortify our selfishness. Strengthen us to mortify our pride. Strengthen us, Lord, to put ourselves second, to prefer others before ourselves, that we would embrace and embody what most pleases you and would be good for your people. Help us to see the, the larger foundation upon which an exhortation to unity rests. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.